Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Right on Hollywood with Christian Toto, part of the Just the News Podcast Network. Sick of media bias infecting film reviews? Furious that too many stars insult your views? Right on Hollywood has your back. Christian is an award-winning journalist, movie critic, and founder of HollywoodinToto.com, the right take on entertainment. Now here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to Right on Hollywood, a proud member of the Just the News Podcast family. This week's episode is brought to you by The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, your one-stop shop for jokes aimed at everyone except the Commander-in-Chief. This week, we're talking with Josh Denny. He's a veteran comic who got canceled and then canceled again, and he lived to tell the tale. He's still making us laugh, and he's got some sobering thoughts on where his free speech is headed in our cancel culture age. I wanted to start the show this week with some deja vu all over again, to quote the late grade Yogi Berra. I am, after all, a Yankees fan. A few years back, a publicist reached out to me. She had a pitch about a musician who was writing music for the score of a new TV show. She reached out directly to my site, Hollywood and Toto, and wanted me to interview this particular musician. Now, that's pretty common. I get lots and lots of pitches from lots and lots of publicists, but this one intrigued me a little bit. Now, I'm not a musical expert, so I decided to hand it off to a contributor to the site who happened to be a musician. Pretty smart guy. I thought, Let, let's have him interview that person. He'll give sort of the more background, a better sense of what this person is accomplishing on the TV show. It just seemed like a better fit for all involved. So I did it. thought the interview was interesting, got some pretty cool quotes out of it, and all seemed right. Fine. Great. Another story for my site. Moving on. Well, that's when the trouble began. The very same publicist who pitched to me, she reached out to me one more time and said, hey, couldn't you take that story down? Turns out the interview source wasn't exactly delighted that she was appearing on a right-of-center website. Now, that's the publicist's fault, really. I mean, this publicist reached out to me. I didn't reach out to her. She should have done a smidge of homework to figure out where my site was coming from. But more importantly, why can't Hollywood and Toto lean to the right? Where's the crime there? So I thought about her question. I thought about her request. And I said, no. Now, this story actually came to mind this week after a similar incident, again, connected to my website. A different contributor came to me and said, hey, this is a comedian that I think is interesting. I'd like to pitch a story and write about him. I said, okay, what's the deal? And he mentioned a specific angle about this person's career that uh, sounded very interesting to me. Now, I did a smidge of research on this particular comic, a stand-up comedian, and he seemed a bit left of center. But you know what? I don't hold that against anyone. I thought the angle of the story was good. It seemed like he was rather inventive in the way he approached his career. And I thought, well, that sounds like good enough for me. I don't mind publishing something like that. 
I don't want to shut people down because they don't align perfectly with my worldview. I, I think that's wrong. So have at it. Well, everything was fine until someone near the comedian gave him a heads up. Hey, Hollywood and Toto is a right of center entertainment site. And suddenly this particular comedian feared what would happen if he was associated with my site. It could mean trouble for his career. As it turns out, he had a pending business deal coming up. It was a pretty big deal for him. I really changed his career. And he feared that could all go south if he publicly connected with a site like Hollywood and Toto, a conservative news site. So I thought about it again. And this time, I killed the story. You know, I really just didn't want to hurt this comedian's career anyway. It just didn't seem fair. It still gave me pause, of course. You know, my site isn't the Daily Stormer. There's no hate on my website. I do my best to uphold journalistic standards. If I make mistakes, I correct them. I'm just doing the very best I can to kind of share entertainment stories for the other half of the country. You know, the one that's usually ignored by mainstream media outlets. Now, there's no reason for a comedian not to be associated with my site. The particular story had nothing to do with politics. It was all about his career, the way he approached it, his comedy routines, things like that. Just basic stuff, maybe some networking he's done in the past. Now, that's not political at all. But the fact that my site is political, is right of center, was a bridge too far, apparently. I mean, I think that really speaks volumes about where we are, both in our climate in general, but also more specifically, the entertainment client. I mean, in a way, I wasn't surprised at all to hear this. This is just the way things are today. I've covered stories where people would hide their names rather than be associated with a right-leaning film. I've talked to actors who tell me, just, hey, please, just don't mention I'm a, I'm a conservative. I don't want that to get out there. It could hurt my career. And of course, we all know about Antonio Sabato Jr. He gave a famous interview a year or so ago saying how his career basically ground to a halt because he was a Trump supporter. <laughs> That's another bridge too far. Now, one of the many ironies here is that Hollywood is at it again. They're making yet another movie about the blacklist era of the 1950s. This one's called McCarthy, and it stars a very talented actor, Michael Shannon, a guy who once said of Trump voters, they're ready for the urn. Of course, he's playing Joe McCarthy. I've started reading some interviews tied to the film. It's not coming out quite yet soon, maybe later this year. And the people behind the movie, well, you know, when they talk about, is this relevant today? Who do they mention but Trump? Trump, Trump, Trump. What do they not mention? The new improved blacklist that, that makes conservatives persona non grata in Hollywood. Now, honestly, before they made the movie, before they rolled the cameras, they should have reached out to me. I'd share a few stories with them about what they really should be talking about. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Right on Hollywood. What's the dial? Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This week's Toto's Take is Mars Attacks. You know, this is one of the goofier projects that come out of Hollywood in recent years. And it plaqued plenty of really big stars, especially at the time. Think Jack Nicholson, Glenn Close, Michael J. Fox, Sarah Jessica Parker, Pierce Brosnan, Annette Benning, Martin Short, Jim Brown, the great Jim Brown, and even Jack Black. He has a small part in the movie, and I don't think he was quite famous, famous yet. He wasn't really Jack Black yet, but that was coming soon. Mars Attacks is like a comic book sprung to life. I like that. It shows an alien invasion and how it's treated by mid-90s America. You get some spiritual gurus. You've got a lot of charlatans trying to milk people out of the money. And the industrial military complex, eager for bloodshed. One of the funnier subtexts of the movie. The tone here is zippy. I love the star power. And it, but I think given those big stars and the massive budget behind it, people expected it to be a sensation. Critically hailed, blockbuster, and it wasn't. Didn't make a lot of money. Reviews were rather mixed. But you know what? If you watch it today and you kind of put all the cultural baggage aside, it's really a good time at the movies. Everyone is in on the joke here. This is director Tim Burton, and he's got the right tone. And all that star power, it just makes it... Gives a kind of sense of gravitas, like, hey, this is maybe a lark, but enough people thought of it that they wanted a star in it, so all the better. Now, the fact that it steals the ending from Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, I, I'm going to forgive that. There's enough flaws here, but it's, again, it's a rollicking good time. Mars Attacks only made $37 million in the U.S. box office back in 1996. Not a good sum then, not a good sum now, of course, but I think it's worth a second look. And if you're a Netflix subscriber, you can do just that. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to Figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Comedian Josh Denny had a conventional career going before the woke mob knocked on his door, not once, but twice. He starred in a Food Network show called Ginormous Food for three seasons. That show was seen in 14 countries. Not too shabby. Life is pretty good for Josh. Then he offered a caustic take on race relations on social media, 
and the cancellation process began. He did it again a little while later with a pro-life tweet barrage. Once again, canceled culture came around, made sure he was unemployable. Food Network in in particular said, hey, we have cut off all ties with Josh. We want nothing to do with him. Because, you know, he said some mean tweets, and that's unacceptable in our current age. Now, I have to say that his social media posts, and again, he throws some sharp elbows for sure, also cost him a corporate gig. Really amazing. Yeah. He's going to share some details about that. It was, <laughs> when you think about it, it's just surreal how a comment on social media can have real-world implications, but his story really does prove it. But he persisted. Now he's got not one but two podcasts, Jenkins and the sports-themed The Big Uglies, plus he's got a show on Censored.tv. It's called Next Week Tonight. Think of it like a late-night talk show, but little harder edged, a little funnier, a little more right of center. What's wrong with that, right? Now, I have to say, one of the things I like about Josh is that he's still speaking his mind. He doesn't care if you agree with him or disagree. He wants to say what he wants to say. It's just words. Now, I'm sure if I went through some of his posts and some of his social media utterances, I'd probably disagree with some of his stuff. You know what? That's okay. We can disagree on things. We can say, oh, you've gone too far. He's a comedian. He's not a head of state. I don't see eye to eye with my wife. She's a Bernie bro, but we still live under the same roof. At least I think we still do. Anyway, I really agree with Josh when it comes to free expression, free speech, and how he takes on cancel culture by not giving in. His willingness to speak his mind is both rare and refreshing. That's why I wanted to talk to him here. I hope you enjoy my conversation with comedian, podcaster, and free speech warrior, Josh Denny. Welcome to the show, Josh. You know, some comedians avoid cancel culture altogether. Others, like the great Dan Aykroyd, apparently embrace it. And then, you know, you've been canceled. And I I just want to start with a, what does it mean when a performer, an artist, is canceled? Sort of what are the beats of that situation? And uh, is there sort of a get out of jail free card at some point or when you're canceled, do you stay that way? Yeah, I guess it sort of depends on what sort of what you're, what you're doing and then what you want to do, what your goals are in the business. So, you know, cancellation is something that it really just is whatever you allow it to be. You know, you look at somebody like Gina Carano, she was very mobilized after her whole ordeal went down and she parlayed that press and just said, you know, I'm not going to be a victim of this. I'm going to, going to continue to do what I want to do. And I'm going to go find partners that want to do it with me. And she did. And now she's making movies with the guys over at Daily Wire. And, you know, so it kind of puts you in that situation. Like for me, you know, working in traditional television or traditional Hollywood and that type of thing sort of came off the table when my first cancellation happened in 2018. Abruptly, like I was in the middle of pitching new shows to production companies and to networks when everything went down and then it all just sort of went to sleep. And so I had to pivot and, uh, and kind of do what Gina did and start saying, okay, well, who are some people out there with money and platforms that are doing what I want to do and will collaborate with me on some of these things. And it took a little while, but I finally, uh, finally found some good partners and, and collaborators and I'm starting to, you know, make stuff with them and do stuff with them. So you know, you just you're going to have to be resourceful and uh, a little um, you're going to have to show some ingenuity and you're definitely going to have to be independently motivated. Um, it's certainly not there. There's I think there's this misconception out there that people have for conservatives to get canceled that like 
you know, we all just log into a web portal somewhere and Ben Shapiro cuts us a check. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's not so simple. I mean, people like, oh, you just go over to the right wing and you make a million dollars. And it's like, no, it's it's not that at all. (laughs) It would it would actually be much easier if I just said all the popular things and agreed with everyone on the left and, uh, you know, kept my my own thoughts and opinions to myself like so many of our our constituents here in Hollywood do. And uh, you'll never know what they really think about things. Uh, That stays in DMs, but they take the road, you know, the the much smoother, (laughs) the road with much smoother pavement, which is just agreeing with all of Hollywood's sentiments and, and, um, you know, plugging in and just working as much as they can. I think when you, you mentioned the Gina Carano and Ben Shapiro situation with the Daily Wire, I get that. It's been reported. It's understandable why they did what they did. Have you found that there have been some folks, either groups or individuals who have partnered with you or reached out to you publicly that maybe you wouldn't expect? Sort of an, uh, an unlikely connection that happened because of what you went through. Yeah, not really. I mean, not professionally, like nobody's coming. No one's really kind of flown in with a golden parachute, so to Mm -hmm. you know, so to speak. But, um, you know what? I I guess what's most surprising through all of it is, is you'd start to believe the hype. Like when when there's a snowball effect of a canceling, you at some point you would have to be a complete robot to not sit back and go, am I is this me? Am I really way off base here with these things? And you know, am I am, like, is, do I have brain damage? What's going on? Like, you know, is it what they say on the Internet? Is it true? And then, you know, what what's really surprising are the all the people that come out of the woodwork. And it's almost sort of like reminiscent of the Hollywood blacklist. There's all these major celebrities that I don't know and have never met that come out of the woodwork and support you, whether it be publicly or in secret. And it's kind of astounding. You're just like, oh, wow, I had no idea that this person is conservative. And, and in some cases, um, very, um, very politically active on the down low. So I, I'd say more like the surprises for me are not necessarily in entertainment or in terms of collaboration. Um, those are kind of the expected collaborators, but really more on the political side, uh, seeing how embraced I've been by some of the like conservative packs here in LA and just some of the other political, like very politically motivated groups. Um, you know, getting me involved in some of the stuff that they're doing that that's kind of been surprising. And, you know, th- that comes with a little bit of growing pains as well, because that that side of, I think, the the liberty movement, I'll call it, that's more conservative is still very pro clutchy when it comes to comedy and <laughs> art. And so I run into a little bit of trouble with that group as well, because they're kind of catching up to you know, it's it's we're sort of in a place now with you, if you're about uh, individualism and freedom, then you kind of got to be all the way. And that might mean, you know, <laughs> letting in some stuff that you might have been a little uncomfortable with before. You mentioned some of the stars who reached out to you pr- privately and supported you and maybe they were right up center in a way that the public doesn't know. Did any of them do anything? For, you don't have to share names if you don't want to. I, I suspect you don't want to. But did any of them do anything for you beyond sort of a. I'm sorry you went through this. I support you. Did they were they able to maybe pull some levers and actually do something for you or for your career? Or was it more just an emotional, moral? Hey, this stinks. I'm sorry. Yeah, it was a lot of moral. um, I will. I'll tell you. So the the finance, the real financial backlash of the canceling in 2018 didn't happen until uh, about a year later because I kind of just like went right back to work and, you know, just I had saved money from doing my show. 
and we were fine for about a year. And I went to take a job with a company in 2019 um, that was with a boss that I had worked for in all my other previous corporate environments as a director of operations. And then on the second day of working there, uh, I was brought into the office and put on suspension pending, you know, pending an investigation, but termination just because of what, you know, I had tweeted and was canceled for in 2018. So it's like everyone at this company that interviewed me and that, that knew I was coming on board knew that I was a comedian. I had hosted a TV show and, you know, a handful of people, um, outside of the, the executive team, you know, probably just did a Google search and then complained. And what's weird about that is that now we live in the, the, this is the real pernicious part of cancel culture that doesn't get talked about a lot. But it's like we live in a world now where something unpopular that you say on the Internet is considered an actionable workplace event now, which is is something that I think from an employment law perspective, we really need to take a hard look at, because it's like, at what point does your job's code of conduct uh, jurisdiction end and your freedom to be an independent person and live your life begin, you know? And, and so we start to look at things like we have protected classes. You can't be fired for your race or your sexual orientation or your religion, but you know, beyond that, it, it becomes a very slippery slope. And quite frankly, the way that it goes down now is you could like the sports team that is the rival of your boss's sports team. And if he goes on Instagram and sees you talking his team, he could just decide tomorrow that you're fired. It's and amazing. So, it actually reminds me of the Morgan Wallen case because here's a guy who used the N-word in, in private, not against mm -hmm. anyone of color. Again, it was just a moment that happened to get caught. And he's been facing consequence after consequence for that for the last year. And yet again, yeah. this was not like he didn't even tweet it. He, he didn't share it. He didn't sing it from the stage. It was like someone just happened to catch him off guard. And I guess he was probably maybe had a few too many. And uh, yeah. that's had professional ramifications beyond anything he could have imagined. Well, and, and two thoughts on that. That's where I really that's where I'm really like a, a, a free speech absolutist in the sense of like, I think we have to start to grow up about the conversation about language and understand there's a difference between saying a word and using a word as a slur. And that was the whole point of contention I've made my entire career about the N word or any other slur word, that type of thing. It's like in, in an artistic way, um, it's not up for you to just blanketly say that anytime this word is used by this color person, it is a slur or it has this meaning. It's like there's context, right? And the, the pushback I've always had as a comedian is, you know, my experience is growing up being a white guy in interracial relationships, receiving racism from my black girlfriend's conservative fathers who didn't want their daughters uh, dating a white guy, uh, growing up with a mom dating a, a white mom dating a black man in the 90s uh, in, in Dover, Delaware, which was a pretty mixed city and racism coming at that scenario from all directions and all races and all sides. Like, yes, I'm a redheaded white comedian, but I think I have some cultural perspective on race and mm -hmm. I'd like to talk about it in my act. And so, uh, you know, there's this idea that I, there are things that I should or shouldn't be allowed to talk about because of the color of my skin and, or my gender. And I just outright reject that. I mean, you know, what somebody is, uh, has nothing to do with their life story or, or their skills or their input or the things that they can provide people that are valuable. And the minute we start to reduce people to their identity uh, and dictating and determining what their potential worth is just based on those things, we lose the magic of humanity. I mean, that's what makes us all special and unique. Not It's not what our sexual orientation is or our race 
or any of that. It, it has to do with who we are and how we've been shaped as individuals. And, and you know, that's where I think the collectivism of the left is very dangerous for America. It's just, it's the opposite of what America is about, which is about I- exceptionalism and individualism. And that's about story and experience and the journey of each person, not, not how they were born or the color of their skin or, you know, who they go to bed with at night. You know, as a, as a seasoned comedian, which you are, I would both trust and want to hear those stories about what you went through as, as someone dating a person of color or maybe having a mom who's doing the same. I think that would be interesting. I think you'd have a, a unique perspective in it and you'd bring some humanity to it, but in certain venues it wouldn't be allowed. I, I know that David well, Chappelle's- what's interesting, what's interesting about that is that black audiences want to hear it. Black audiences love getting a white person's perspective on something that they more often deal with. The, the people who have a problem with it are white people who can't relate to it at all. Mm-hmm. And so they feel like it's wrong. And so that's what's so interesting is the people that want to shut that kind of stuff down are white people who really have no say in the conversation. And, you know, I started my career in all black comedy clubs, and, and that was the kind of material that got over and and got me moving forward in my career. It is interesting when when liberal white people are trying to speak for people of color. It seems kind of backward and kind of disempowering. But I, I know yeah. the Dave Chappelle situation has been talked about to death. I, I haven't had a chance to talk to you about it specifically. Is there anything about that whole situation that maybe hasn't been explored, should have been explored, or, or maybe you have a specific takeaway that hasn't been sort of discussed in the culture at large? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the biggest thing that nobody wants to talk about which is kind of like the running theme of my career now is just being the guy who says the thing nobody (laughs) else is going to say and paying whatever price there is that comes along with that. But Dave addressed something that I've talked about with my black friends all the time is that uh, as much as the black community loves to talk about the problems of racism in this country, black, the black community is very, very good at avoiding the fact that they have a tremendous homophobia problem in their culture. And uh, you sit in sports You see it in, I mean, I grew up playing multiple sports. I played football and ice hockey, and I had black kids on my hockey team who were also incredibly homophobic. Um, But yeah, so you kind of grow up around that, you know, coming up in in the comedy scene in the Midwest and doing a lot of black venues. You, You saw how rampant it was. And so I think Dave, in a way, is trying to show a little vulnerability and saying, like, listen, I understand there's some homophobia on our side or transphobia on our side. You have to understand that as black people who are experiencing our own thing, we just don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's what's really at the core. I feel I can't speak for the man, but I feel that's really at the core of, of how he feels and what's and what kind of comes through in his art. And then all I really want to see is a gay person um, or a trans comic, gay comic or trans comic have the guts to come out and call out the other side. Like, I just want to see enough whining and complaining and picketing and going out and protesting. There are plenty of good gay comedians or trans comedians that are funny, that are smart. They're just afraid to do it. So if he's going to call out and say, yeah, we think your stuff is weird and we're still not comfortable with it. You need to have somebody on your side artistically that can come out and make a better argument and say, yeah, you guys are archaic homophobic dinosaurs and you need to get your shit together. And this is the thing that's so funny to me is that like people all of a sudden think that criticism of anyone is an endorsement of their enemy or in some way uh, derogatory or diminishing. But it's like if, if we're all equal, right, 
then we're all equal in, in the eyes of criticism or the eyes of critique. And so that's really where I think the left fails or liberals fail is that rather than counter it with great art and go back at the other person's jugular, they just sit back and complain and, and they want it canceled. They want it shut down. They want his specials removed from Netflix. They want to eliminate competition. And I think the reality is because they know that even if somebody does go after Dave Chappelle from the other point of view, there's probably not anybody who's on Dave's level. Um, and so that's that's where the, the concept of competition comes into play. And that's what's interesting to me is that nobody on that side even wants it's, it's sort of like there's a bully in the schoolyard who's like, who's next? Mm-hmm. Nobody's got the guts to step in. And I've always had the guts to step in with people I disagree with. But one of the things that I one of the criticisms I got from my own girlfriend when 2018 canceling happened is she said, you know, sometimes you need to stop being a mouthpiece on Twitter and just put it in your work. Write a great stand up bit, do a short film, do a sketch. But you could put it in the art and make a much more compelling argument than just saying your opinions all the time. And she's absolutely right about that. And so I think that's where I think on both sides, sometimes we sort of fall victim to our own opinions rather than saying like, man, how do I counter what he's doing artistically with what I want to do artistically? And then let's let's get a real dialogue going. Yeah. And and if you didn't have that real dialogue, you wouldn't be able to accept that kind of advice, which sounds very smart <laughs> and probably impacted yeah. your art kind of moving forward. Uh, I, I know you've got a uh, show next week tonight on censored.tv. It, it's sort of a faux news story, like kind of tweaking some of the existing late night shows. Tell us more about it and what's your vision for it. Yeah. So we've only been doing it for about six months. And when I say we, it's me <laughs> I'm writing, I'm writing, directing, filming, producing, editing. I'm doing everything for this show. And I've, I've joked that I've kind of had to go to like YouTube film school to like figure out how to make my own thing on an iPhone in a room with a green screen. But I, you know, it's coming together and I'm getting happy with it, uh, with where it's at. The idea of the show is really to sort of take the, predictability of what has become mainstream news and use it to forecast some satirical news down the road. So it's like, what are the absurd things that are happening today and what might be some of the absurd things that will happen tomorrow or next week or the week after that. So uh, we always, uh, the, the concept of the show is that it's a future events show, not a current events show. And the fun thing about that is I really don't have to do a ton of research. I, I <laughs> sort of just take what's out in the news today and try to forecast it in the most ridiculous way seven days, 10 days out. It's funny, you know, the Babylon Bee does that. They have a running series on social media where they say the Babylon Bee prophecy is fulfilled because they basically knew what was coming next. And I think if you're a savvy comedian like you are, you can kind of sense where the culture is heading a few weeks down the road, if not even sooner. So that that's interesting. It is part yeah, of the inspiration the there. That, Go ahead. I'm sorry. The, the guys at the Bee are brilliant. I, I love those dudes. I've been over there a couple of times. I just did a sketch with them last month. Uh, making fun of the the FBI, uh, <laughs> you know, planning the insurrection or p- sort of planning everything together. And they're, they're they're very creative guys. And they I think they're the best ones out there doing it now in terms of being in front of the news and doing it in one of the in, in the funniest ways. Yeah, I saw that clip. It was very funny. I think Adam Yenzer might have been in there as well. Yeah, Adam. Yeah, Adam's a buddy of mine, too. It, you know, there's very few of us here in L.A. <laughs> conservative comedians. So we all know each other kind of a secret handshake uh, behind the scenes. Uh, you know, what else is going on in the comedy culture? I, it's, I'm, I'm sure you get reached out to all the time by peers who 
want to want to support you, maybe think you're doing the right thing, but are too afraid to do it themselves. Is it just fear that's going on behind the scenes and stopping more comedians? I mean, you would think comedians would be on the front lines of the cancel war, a cancel culture war. And yet, you know, it's you, it's Ricky Gervais, it's, you know, Adam Carolla. You can count them on one hand. What, what is it just fear? Is there something else that's stopping them from speaking out for free speech? Yeah, I well, I think I think who comedy has attracted in the last 20 years has really, really changed where I think you're getting less of the um, you're getting less of sort of the the village artists, so to speak. You know, Ari Shafir talks about this all the time about like his hope for New York is that it's about to be the 70s again. and It's going to become this really punk rock sort of alternative edgy scene. And I think that's probably more true in the New York comedy scene than in the LA comedy scene right now. Cause you do see more of those comics taking risks and chances and, and rejecting uh, the tide. But the LA scene is very different. Like they're not made up of sort of independent thinkers. It's really made up of a lot of people who went to school and got a degree they are now unemployable with. And in comedy, they found this sense of community with other people that are trust fund kids who can kind of do whatever they want and not really need to accomplish much. And it's almost become like uh, improv was always this way, you know, and it was like cultish. And, and the stand up scene in L.A. has kind of adopted that UCB cult like vibe um, where it, it's become almost like rowing crew. You know, like, you know, six or seven people want to work together on things and then they they have their shows that they trade spots with. And there's a little bit of sort of like racketeering that goes on where they're trying to jockey and keep certain people out, bring certain people in. So, you know, comedy historically has been something that rewards individualism. Right. And you go, oh, wow, this, you know, Mitch Hedberg guy's so unique. He's got a, such a unique delivery and a unique voice. And, you know, we want to push that guy. Where now it's like the the scene of comedy is more about agreeing on the same things first and then trying to be funny from there forward. And it just, you know, to me, that's always the less the the lesser in terms of funny, mm -hmm. you know, that they're not really getting the, the good. You're not what you really should be going for. What's the funniest thing? And in a lot of cases, in my mind, that's generally what's the most wrong thing to say. Um, and so when it's sort of like. We, we have to establish first which direction comedy has to push or in the, the way they like to talk about is punch. Um, and then that that creates a whole new sort of ripple effect of what's acceptable. And then so everything starts from that place. And you see it in TV. I mean, look how many unfunny, unsuccessful shows have been churned out by, you know, Comedy Central or the networks or different things. And look at just the amount of comedies made in general. Like even studios are saying, we don't want to touch comedy. Like we're <laughs> they're not, out. They're we out. don't want to make comedies. We don't want to, it's just too risky. And I wonder, and maybe you wonder this too, how long is it going to be before somebody with a checkbook goes, Oh my God. But if I go get the next Seth Rogen and, and, and make all these great, funny stoner comedies, or I, I said, you know, what, what happened to all the titty comedies of the eighties? somebody's going to realize that there's a demand for this stuff and they're going to make it. And that's where I find myself in this weird spot because I'm an anything goes, go for the funniest thing comedian. And a lot of the, the big pocketbooks on the conservative side in America now are sort of puritanical in that sense. So you do kind of, there is this hole right now that we're waiting to, to fill. And 
it's like, boy, do I have the work to fill it with, but the production and, and some of the different channels haven't caught up yet for people that are just like, I just want to make stuff that would have been really funny back in the eighties and nineties. Cause I think it's still funny today. Yeah. And I think that for that to succeed, it has to be really low budget, but legitimately funny, not even just button pushing or outrageous or irreverent. It would have to kind of have that combination of it's dangerous and legitimately well-written. And I think that's really hard to do. Uh, are there any comedians yes. out there now that you know of that, that maybe aren't not even just mainstream, but just not getting their names out there that you could recommend just for someone who's sort of cutting against the tide and maybe they, they deserve a little love? Yeah, well, there's, you know, a lot of people in my circle that I really like. Chrissy Mayer, I think, is somebody who's doing a really a, a lot of really great stuff right now. Um, she's got a, a podcast, say, uh, a CMP, Chrissy Mayer podcast. Mm. And she's one of the best comedic interviewers that's out there. I, I'd say she's probably two to Joe Rogan in terms of like her interviewing ability and just her ability to get good stories out of people and everything. So I think she's somebody that is on the cusp and, um, you know, is, is definitely moving in the right direction. I think she's getting more recognition stuff. She's got a show uh, called the wet spot on compound media, which is Anthony Cumia's network. Um, yeah. But as far as standups, I mean, you know, the names I would drop are the names that I think they're, they're big in the comedy world, but maybe not in the mainstream. Like, you know, Tim Dillon, I think is one of the funniest people on the internet now. And, and he's not really, on television or in movies yet, but I think that's coming. And, mm -hmm. and I think Tim Dillon is a very important person right now because Tim doesn't have all the right opinions. Um, and we, we joked even before Tim was on Joe Rogan and his show blew up to this monumental success. And now he's making a couple million dollars a year just on Patreon from his podcast. His shows are sold out all over, but two or three years ago, um, we, we joked amongst comedians in the community that the reason that Tim doesn't get pushed is because he's the wrong kind of gay, meaning he's not, he doesn't, he's not flamboyant. He's not sassy. I mean, he might be in, in some ways, but, <laughs> but he's kind of like a regular dude from, you know, Long Island who happens to be gay. And, uh, you know, that wasn't necessarily marketable in their minds, but it was unique and individual. And here we are. And he's the biggest rising name in all of comedy. And so, I, the reason I bring up Tim Dillon, even though he's not a secret by any stretch, is he's a very important person to swing this the right way. Getting getting us back to a meritocracy and comedy where just being an individual and having a unique voice is the product. And as soon as the you know industries start to recognize that and start to put money towards that, then you'll start to see individualism. Um, and exceptionalism be rewarded again. And you'll actually start to see really talented people get on television and, and have careers instead of, uh, we found a transgender Indian girl who does TikToks. Um, <laughs> can we give her a late night talk show? And they go, yeah, we don't have that yet. So yeah, give, yeah. What do we give her? 200,000 an episode? Sounds good. Yeah. Uh, quick note on Tim Dillon. I, I grew up on Howard Stern. Uh, I'm from New York as well. And I feel like at times Tim Dillon's podcast is the closest thing we have now to, to Howard, the old Howard, the kind of the old school Howard, because he he says he says the wrong things. He makes jokes about the wrong topics. He doesn't have empathy in ways that traditional people have empathy, but it's all in the service of, of humor. And he, he's brilliant at it. So uh, he, I'm glad you mentioned him. And he, he is terrific. Well, and he, and as it, Chrissy Mayer. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say, isn't it amazing when you look at a network like Comedy Central, that's like it's on its last breath and you go like, how is somebody in that building not just going, I'll fix the network? Late night show every night with Tim Dillon. Give him an hour talk show where he, he can have panel or it could just be him. 
could literally just be him talking to camera for an hour. That's what his podcast is. Back up the Brinks truck. And you would li- if you just moved his podcasting audience over to your network, it would be the second highest rated show on your network behind South Park. Uh, you'd fix it overnight. And then, you know, give look at the sketches that a guy like Shane Gillis canceled from SNL. Right. The funniest sketches I've ever seen, funnier than anything that's been on SNL in 30 years. And you t- you give that guy a scripted sketch show, put that in at seven, eight o'clock, do that three nights a week or once a week or whatever. I mean, if you took these pe- and a lot of these people are canceled or considered problematic, if you just took some of these people that are having hyper success independently and just put the money of your- and the power of your networks behind them, you'd save your networks. They're so politically opposed to just letting the best ideas or the most popular ideas or jokes or thoughts or whatever live and breathe that they won't even make the obviously easy and best business choice. I mean, it's, it's mind blowing. I, I, I say this over and again, the systems, the how the Hollywood power brokers would rather leave piles and piles of money on the table than do exactly what you're describing. And, and, and as a result, these people are being successful on their own indie terms. They're doing it their way. So, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're working around the system and there are enough digital platforms existing to let them do just that. And, uh, and Josh, you're part of that because you've got censored.tv, your show next week tonight. Also, you've got podcasts, including Jankum. And then I, I guess big uglies is a newer one. It's more sports theme, but that is that a fairly new entry or has that been around a while? Well, we did a we did a podcast test of it about a year ago, myself mm-hmm. and a comedian in L.A. here, Carl Spitali, who was uh, an NFL lineman, collegiate lineman, played in the CFL. Uh, he was in the NFL for a cup of coffee, but played for two big division one schools. And, you know, so he's very, very familiar with uh, football. We started as a football podcast, but we found that, you know, he, he's big into the news space. I'm big into the news space. And we felt like let's do a sports show where we talk about the topics that nobody will touch. Cause mm-hmm. you know, like we talked about the Chappelle thing, everyone's arguing about it, but nobody's really willing to touch on what's actually being discussed or what's actually, you know, what's up for debate. And so, you know, when we look at things like uh, Colin Kaepernick, like we're, we're not going to talk about the things that the other sports shows talk about. We're going to talk about is Colin Kaepernick full of shit. <laughs> and did he completely make the show up? And, you know, uh, what are the, some of the things that happened in that show are so ridiculous that you're just like, that would get thrown away from the worst writers. In <laughs> There's no way any of that. Stuff. So, all right. We, our tagline for the show is the topics they won't talk about it. And we just try to dive in and address things that, you know, other people just won't talk about, you know, yeah. the, the Henry Ruggs thing is a great situation to discuss is just like, how does that happen? How does a football player with that much money and that many resources, um, you know, find themselves in that predicament? And, you know, it's a it's a sad situation. It's a sad story. But at the end of the day, it's like that you also have to address the fact that there are, you know, what, 400 other NFL players that don't do that every day. So as much (laughs) as people want to talk about systemic problems and things like that, it's like, well, what about the other 400 players that don't kill somebody driving drunk every day? You know what I mean? It's like. So, again, some of these things you sort of have to look at. And, you know, we talk about, what, like, why does a guy like Colin Kaepernick get all this push and attention? But a guy like Malcolm Jenkins, who does so much work in the community to try to help uh, underserved or underprivileged communities, you know, thrive or improve, 
gets no press whatsoever. And, and Malcolm Jenkins was treated like an Uncle Tom when the Colin Kaepernick stuff happened. So it's like, you know, there are a lot of these topics that really, you know, the, the mainstream media doesn't talk about it. Mean, look, look at the mainstream media, how much they're crucifying Kyrie Irving for um, not wanting to be vaccinated. They're saying he's a bad teammate. They're saying he has enough money. Screw him. He doesn't deserve to play. It's like, are, are we just going to overlook the fact that we now are in 2021 arguing about uh, there are people on the left that believe that this is the most racist America has ever been, including the slavery times. And we're meanwhile, our media is telling this black man he's not free to make a medical decision for himself. I mean, that to me is the, the epitome of hypocrisy. But and, none of the mainstream sports shows will talk about that. You know, in a way, it's a shame that we can't have discussions, open, unfettered discussions. But you know what? You're doing it and some other people are doing it. I had the chance to meet Gina Carano recently and just an absolute sweetheart. But I just thought, God, she's got guts just to do what she did and to know that she was on the precipice of being fired from arguably the biggest show around. And she just said, you know what? I want to speak my mind. I want to say what I want to say. And if there are consequences, there are consequences. And uh, she did that. And now she's, she's bouncing back. And of course, you are here and still bouncing back, Josh. Thank you so much for joining right on Hollywood. Again, you could hear him on podcast Jankum and also Big Uglies. And of course, Censored.tv with his show next week tonight. It's giving the uh, the late night shows and the news the ribbing that they sorely deserve. Thank you, Josh. Keep speaking freely and uh, we appreciate your courage. Thank you. Thanks for supporting me and having me on the show. Thanks for listening to Right on Hollywood, part of the Just the News podcasting family. Now, I know this is about two or so months away, but I really hope you'll pre-order my new book, Virtue Bombs, How Hollywood Got Woke and Lost Its Soul. It's my first official book, and I really poured my heart straight into it. And to quote our friends on the left, it's the book we need now more than ever. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the Right on Hollywood podcast, part of the Just the News network. We'd love to hear from you about the show. You can email Christian at HollywoodandToto.com. And please don't forget to rate and review us at Apple Podcasts. Five-star reviews make our day. But just speak from the heart. Free speech matters more than ever.